Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Great job, Miss Mary. Thank you for that. Take your Bibles and go with me to Psalms chapter 74. Psalms chapter 74 this evening. Thank you for being in your place. And uh, I trust we'll have a good time together this evening around God's Word. It'll be a beneficial time for us as we examine God's Word. Psalms chapter 74. If you do not have a Bible with you this evening, there should be one maybe in the back of the seat right there in front of you. Uh, Perhaps it's in the back of the seat maybe just behind you. But I would encourage you to pick up a copy of God's Word and follow along with us as we continue working our way through the book of Psalms. We are in the third book of the Psalms. The Psalms in three different sections. It's only three total books, but there's three different individual books of the song and we, psalm, and we are in book number 74, or, or chapter number 74. The next several chapters, you'll see a very common theme in the psalms. The theme is one of lament. The psalmist in, these, in this particular section are lamenting about the situation or the struggle or the trouble that they are finding themselves in. And by way of the Psalms, we are invited to enter into their struggle. But more than that, we are invited to make their prayers our prayer. That's really how I want you to see the Psalm in particular this evening. Man, invited to make this Psalm, which is a Psalm of Asaph, who's a a musician for David, but invited to make this psalm, all, make this psalm our psalm. And I think you'll quickly realize uh, this evening how it is that we're supposed to do that. The psalm really breaks out into three very simple sections. So I want you to see it just first, then we'll read it, and then we'll explain it, and then we'll go home. Okay, so that's the idea tonight. But you'll see verse number 1 to verse number 11. And the psalmist is explaining his grief. These first 11 verses, he's helping us understand what it is that he is grieved about. What it is that is bringing him this trouble into his heart, into his life. What's happening in his life that is then affecting or causing him trouble in his heart. You'll see in verse number 12 to verse number 17, you'll see the psalmist's belief. So first, the first 11 verses, you see his deep grief. You see second, his confidence, or how we'll understand it this evening, his belief that although he is experiencing this trouble and although he is experiencing these problems, he still has this foundation. He still has this belief. You'll notice quite um, readily, verse number 12, for God is my king of old. If you really want a verse that kind of hinges the chapter, that's the verse. That's, that's the hinge that the door of this psalm swings on. For God is my king of old. And then listen to this, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And that's a wonderful, wonderful verse. And then, So you have the grief, the belief, and then the final section there, verse number 18, all the way to the end, verse number 23, you have the psalmist crying out for relief. So those are our three sections. Let's jump in. Let's get right to work. Verse number one, you notice, verse one down to verse number 11, you'll see his grief. With me, verse number one, O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? 
Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember the congregation which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. So the psalmist is explaining the reason why he is experiencing this deep grief, and it's in particular because he feels this rejection from God. Now whether the psalmist was or wasn't rejected by God is really irrelevant. What is relevant is that the psalmist feels as if God has, look at it in verse number one, cast them off. As if he has, verse number two, he's forgotten them. That's why he's asking God to remember them. So you don't need to ask someone to remember you if they have not forgotten you, right? So he's saying, God, you've forgotten me. You've, you've cast me off. You've thrown us away. You've, you've removed yourself from us. You'll see this later on. Look at verse number 11. Why withdrawest thou thy hand, even thy right hand? And so there's an image there. The psalmist is saying, God, you, you've cast us off. You've thrown us away. God, remember us because clearly... Because of what we're going through, it's clear that you have forgotten us. And, and God, why did you pull, that's withdraw, why did you pull your, your right hand away from us? Why did you remove yourself? You, you stopped showing yourself strong. You stopped holding our hand. You stopped helping us up so that we were going. Like, think of the image of holding a little child as they're stumbling down and learning to walk. And the image is the right hand of God has been removed. So now Asaph, the congregation, Israel is stumbling. They're falling. There is a sense of complete rejection. And so it is with you and with me that when we go through trouble, when we experience disaster, when we have some sort of grief in our life, some sort of problems, maybe a trial, maybe a sickness, maybe a financial thing, maybe something relationally. So it is with us that when we go through these sorts of seasons, it can feel to us as if God has rejected us in some way. As if God has forgotten us. He's taken his hand away from us. He's, he's cast us off, but he's cast us off not just temporarily, but notice forever. Look at verse number one. You've cast us off forever. This is the way it will always be. This is how bad it is for the psalmist. Because he's interpreting his circumstances of life as this is, this is terrible. This is bad. God's forgotten us. He's removed himself from us. He isn't helping us anymore. He's thrown us off. And he hasn't just, he hasn't just separated us himself a little bit, but he's removed himself completely and he's done this forever. You say, well, why is the psalmist feeling this sense of rejection? That's really verse number three down to verse number nine. I want you to look at that with me. Verse number three down to verse number nine. So lift up thy feet unto the per, uh, lift up thy feet unto perpetual desolations, even that even all that the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. So, so why is the psalmist, look here, why is the psalmist feeling this rejection? Because of what is being done by the wicked in the sanctuary. Look at verse number three. Even all that the enemy hath done wickedly in the sanctuary. So he feels this rejection. He feels this grief. He has this problem. God's cast him off, removed his hand, isn't helping him anymore. He's forgotten him. 
Why? Why does the psalmist feel it? Because of what's happening in the sanctuary. Look at verse number 4. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. Look, look, down, in, look down in verse number 9. We see not our signs. As he's saying, your enemies came in and they tore down our signs. They, they, they removed all those godly instruments. Like I think they're all those wonderful Old Testament pictures, right? The Ark of the Covenant, the lampstands, the rods, the curtains, the, 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 the curtain that surrounded the temple, the tabernacle. Think of all those beautiful, wonderful images from the Old Testament that God gave to his people. Think, think the law of Moses. Think Aaron's, uh, Aaron's rod that, that blossomed when all, the other blossomed, when all the other rods didn't. Think of all those beautiful signs that God said, take those, put them in my temple that when you see them, you'll always be reminded of that I am a God who is for you. He, he's saying, we don't see those anymore. They've ripped down all of our signs and they've put up their own ensigns. They put up their own flags. They hung their own banners. They're, they're waving their own standard. They, they, have all, they, they, tore all, they tore all these down, which reminded us that you were for us. And they've put up all these other ones, which are a testament to their own gods. In particular, what's happening is there's desolation in the sanctuary. There's desolation in the temple. They're, they're coming, they're tearing down all these signs that reminded the congregation that God was for them. And they put up all these other signs that basically are saying, our God is stronger than yours. Look at verse number four, or look at verse number five, rather. As or a man was famous, according as he lifted up axes upon thick trees. So he's giving you an image. This is an image here. He's saying... This enemy who did all these wicked things, he was like a wild and crazy lumberjack. That's the kind of image. Like this wild and crazy lumberjack, like the guy who went through the forest and just chopped down trees. This barbarian thing, long, big beard, his crazy flannel shirt, you know, large muscles, bulging biceps, probably something similar to how I look, right? And he's going through, and he's, this is this kind of crazy man, this way, wielding this axe. Look at him, verse number five, as he lifted up axes. Look now, verse number six. But now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. Do you see the image? The image is our signs aren't there, they're, they're torn down. Those, those things that reminded us that you were for us are no longer there. All their flags are waving, and the enemy that came in and did that, and they came in and they did it, wielding these axes and throwing them around like these wild, crazy, uh, maniac lumberjacks who were just wrecking de desolation and causing havoc everywhere that they go. Not just that, but look, look verse number 7. And they have cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. So there's this mass invasion. They're tearing down signs. They're putting up their own. They're, they're wielding axes. They're destroying everything that they come in contact with. And they're, they're trashing. That's the word defiled. They're trashing, they're ruining the sanctuary. And to complicate it, verse number 9 now, to complicate it, there is no more any prophet. It's what, what, they, what, what, he, what Asaph is saying is, and we have no word from you. 
We, we, have, we, have no, we have no word, no regard, no one standing proclaiming your message. No one saying to us that you are fighting for us. So there's, there's no prophet. There's no signs from God. There, there's no ark. It's all being torn apart. It's all being laid waste. It's all being dirty and trashed and ruined and destroyed. Why does the psalmist feel the grief? Because he has this overwhelming sense of rejection. What is the sense of rejection coming from? Because the temple of God, there's no word from God. The temple is being destroyed, being trashed. There's no word from God. There's no signs from God that God's presence is still there. And it's as if God has forgotten them. One more thing to notice about this grief. You'll notice this. This, these two phrases that respond through these first 11 verses over and over. Look at verse number one. The phrase or the, or the word, why? Look at verse number one, about halfway through the verse. Why? Look, look, at, verse number, um, look at verse number nine, the very end of the verse. How long? Look at verse number 10, very beginning of the verse. How long? Look at verse number 11. What's the first word? Why? So, so here's Asaph's response to this rejection, to the temple being ruined. Here's his response to it. His response is the same response. It's the same two problematic questions that you and I have when we face trials. It's the same two questions that you and I have when we go through difficulty. It's the same two questions that you and I have when we're faced with, with, with some invading monsters who are just wrecking havoc in our lives with their axes, destroying everything that we've been trying to build up. Two questions, why and how long? Aren't those the same two questions we ask? Why did I have to get sick? Why did, why did my child have to be taken? Why did, why did my husband have to leave? Why did my parents have to break up? Why has this trial happened to me or to my family or to my church or to my congregation? Lord God, why did I have to go through this? Same question we ask. And second question, how long? How long is it going to be like this? How long do I have to endure this? How much more do I have to take? Two questions. Asaph's response to ruin and to rejection that Help us understand the depth of the grief that he is feeling. Why and how long? And it is no different for you and for me. When we go through cataclysmic events, when we go through deep suffering, when we go through deep water, we ask the same two questions. Why and how long? Why and how long? Notice that the answer to these two questions are never revealed to Asaph. God never says, it's only going to happen for about six more months and then it'll be, it'll be done. 
It's never revealed to Asaph. It's ne God never tells Asaph, well, here is why it's happening. Now, you can be a, a good Bible scholar, you can be a good Bible student, and you can piece together the puzzle of the Bible, and you can learn that this flows out of 2 Chronicles, where the children of Israel were immediately disobedient to God. And God warned them not to be disobedient to him, but to obey them, and they refused, generation after generation after generation, refused to obey obey God. They hid his word. They ran from his word. They buried his word. And because they rebelled against God, God is bringing this judgment into their life. So you could piece the, the pieces together and you could get the story right and you go, okay, well, that's why it happened. But hear me on this. Asaph's prayer never includes the why. Okay, so stepping back into, stepping back to where we are looking in to history, we can piece it together. Go, oh, well, that's why that happened, because we have now this 30,000-foot view, and we can see it so much clearly on the pages of Scripture. But what you need to know is that for Asaph, it was not so easily discerned. He couldn't just open his Bible and thumb a few chapters or pages back and find out why that was happening. And so it is with you and with me, is it not? That when we go through trials, we ask the same thing, how long? And we ask the same thing, why? And oftentimes, that question is never answered in the immediate, but that question is always answered some way in the future. But hear me on this, it's not even always answered in the future. It's sometimes you go through things in your life that you go, God, why did I have to go through this? Why did I have to go through that? And the Lord never gives you an answer. Enter example A. Job. Does Job ever get a reason? Is Job ever told why it was that he had to go through what he went through? No. And yet you and I read the book of Job, and we read the first chapter, and the second chapter, and the fourth chapter, and we're like, Just hang in there, Job. Don't worry. It'll be better by the time you get to chapter 40, because God will give you double everything you have, so you'll be fine. But you and I, we don't view our own circumstances that way. We don't view our own problems that way. We have the same, similar response as, as Asaph. Why and how long? So, so here's my question on this first point. Does that resonate with you? Can you read that and actually be invited into that and go, man, I know exactly what that feels like. I'm certain that there is a a section of our minds or our hearts where we would like to answer yes. But I think in most cases, the truthful answer is probably no. Because it's easy for us to read this while we sit here with all the signs, with all the presence of God, with the Word of God, with the fellowship of the people of God, no desolation, no wild lumberjacks running through the hallways wielding axes. It's just the children, I promise they're okay. So it's easy to go, oh, well, that, yeah, that makes sense because I ask questions just like that too. And yet actually the, the power of the Psalms, and this is, this is so important to get, the power of the Psalms is that they aren't just words on paper, but that they are actually prayers from God's people where the Psalms are our invitation to say this is what they prayed and this is what we can also pray as well. 
Why is Asaph grief-stricken? He's grief-stricken at the destruction of the meeting place of God, and he's grief-stricken at the destruction of the people of God, and he's grief-stricken that these people of God have no word from God because God has apparently rejected them. I think often in the Psalms, I like to pick and choose what really resonates with me and what really doesn't. I like to pick things like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. Oh man, that really makes me feel special. That verse, chapter, that resonates with me. But a chapter like this, God, look what's happening to your people. And what's happening to your people is causing grief to my heart. Those kinds of verses, these kinds of chapters, they don't resonate with us the same way. We can come across things like this. And do we make these sorts of psalms our prayer? And that's really the difference between spiritual maturity and spiritual immaturity. Spiritual maturity comes across things like this and says, Lord, I want this to be my prayer. I, I, want, I want to grieve over the things that grieve you. I want to be bothered over the things that bother you. I want to be moved by the things that move you. I, I want the, listen, this is what I want for us as a church. This is what I want for my own life. I want the Psalms to shape the way we pray, shape the way we see each other, shape the way we see what God is doing in our lives. There is another man in the Bible who also wept over what he saw happening to his people. Do you remember who that was? His name was Jesus. That when Jesus overlooks Jerusalem and the destruction and the desolation and the rejection and the ruin and the signs being torn down and the ensigns being put up and the monstrous work that the law has done to the people of God, he grieves. Jesus Christ felt the grief of Psalms 24 when he saw here is a place where God was supposed to meet with his people. People, and he's grieved at the trash that he sees happening in that place. And just as Jesus was grieved by that, just as Asaph was grieved by that, so many others in the Old Testament and the New were grieved just the same way. Paul is grieved. The prophets are grieved. There's all kinds of men who are grieved in this way when they see what's happening to the people of God. And I wonder if you and I are grieved like that. Why and how long? So we have first the grief, we have second the belief. This is verse number 12, verse number 17. And in these verses, the, the psalmist is going to give us these wonderful images. He's basically going to say two things. He's going to say first about, about the belief. He's going to say first, God is my rescuer. That's verse number 12. For God is my king of old. I love that verse. For God is my king of old. Past tense. Working salvation. Present tense. 
in the midst of the earth. God is my king of old. And what has my king of old been doing? He's been working salvation. That was seen in the signs. But what is God also currently doing? He is currently working salvation for the nations. What he's saying. For God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. And he says in verse number 13, now, now 13 to the end, he's going to give us all these wonderful images. And you have, you have to notice the images to understand the, the, the description, or otherwise you just breeze through it and it's just another song. You have, you have to notice the images, okay? So verse number 13, notice all the personal pronouns. Thou, verse number 14. Thou, verse number 15. Thou, verse number 16. Thine, verse number 17. Thou, all, all these personal pronouns pointing back to, pointing back to the God, God is my king of old and works salvation. So, so everything that he's about to tell you about God's power, it's a descriptive, it's an image, and it's descriptive of the kind of king that our God is and the kind of ways that our God shows his power. So notice verse number 13, thou, my king of old, working salvation, God didst divide the sea by thy strength. It was very interesting because the sea was actually a god, small g, to the Canaanite cultures. They actually worshipped the god of the sea. Actually, many people, not just the Canaanites, but many ancient people worshipped the god of the sea because the sea posed the largest benefit, but it also posed the largest threat to their societies. It posed the largest benefit because they were a sea full of fish, full of life, full of vitality, full of trade, able to travel and move. So the sea had, the sea had benefit. You wanted to please the God of the sea so that you could reap a really good fish, uh, uh, fishing expedi expedition. But the sea also posed the greatest threat, right? We would understand this because how can you control the sea? Well, you, you can't. This is why you need to appease the God of the sea. It's why you need to make the God of the sea happy. Okay, so here's what the psalmist is saying. Thou, our God of old who's working salvation... He divides the sea by his strength. Right? So all the trouble, all the threat, all the problems. Listen, listen. Your trouble, your threat, that thing that is terrifying to you, the sea of your life, medical diagnosis, financial problem, relationship struggles, problems with your parents, problems with your brothers or sisters, uh, internal church struggles, external political problems, things that happen in your city, the sea, the trouble, those things that may swell up and feel like at any time they could just overcome the boat of life and just flip you capsized and cause you to drown. Our God is the God who is dividing that sea. He's just chopping it in half by his own strength. Is that not a great picture? Not just that. Notice this. Well, you don't have to like it, but I thought it was really good. Thou, our God, breakest the heads of the dragons in the water. Thou breakest the heads of Leviathan in to pieces. So you have two really wonderful images about very terrible, monstrous beasts. 
the dragons, and Leviathan. Leviathan's mentioned in Job. He's mentioned other places in the Psalms. Early on in the Pentateuch, you find Leviathan mentioned. So you have, you have God dividing the sea, this big troublemaker. You have God also. You have God breaking the head, crushing the head, stepping on the head, de defeating these, these two monsters, the dragons and Leviathan that are rising up, striking fear and trouble. This is, this is not to say that what was walking around Jerusalem was a dragon and it was spewing fire everywhere. That's, that's, not, that's not what Asaph is saying. He's using this, this image, right? Like we would say he's a monster, right? We'd say something like to that effect as, as, an, as an image. What do we mean? Does he mean he has six arms and eight eyes and large fang teeth? No, that, that's a fictional creature. It doesn't exist. Right? He's a monster. What do we mean? He's wrecking havoc. He's causing fear. So, so these dragons, leviathans, these monsters in your life, what does God do to them? He just he steps on them. He, he crushes them. He removes them. He, this is how powerful our God is, that the sea, the troublemaker of your life, and those monsters in your life, those dragons and leviathans, God is powerful over them. Here's what Asaph is saying. Just like in our life, just like in his, there are monsters that are at work. There are monsters at work in your life. There are monsters at work in my life. You want to know a monster at work in our lives? Pride. You want to know a monster at work in our life? Bitterness. You want to know a monster at work in our life? Lust. You want to know a monster at work in our life? Grumbling and complaining. You want to know a monster at work in our lives? Covetousness. Greed. You want to know monsters at work? Not, not just your four-year-old. I mean, they might be in a different sense. But these are the monsters at work, right? These are the dragons. These are the leviathans. These are the deep creatures of the sea. The wonderful story told of this New Zealand fishing crew that caught a, um, a, a Patagonian toothfish and they're pulling it onto their boat and then they realize that there's something else hanging onto the bottom of this fish. And so two hours later, they pull onto their fishing boat a colossal squid, 39 feet long, 1,000 pounds. They said the eyes of this squid were the size of plates. They pull this on to, this is the kind of monster, right? Terrifying. This is the kind of monster Asaph is thinking in his mind. This large colossal squid just comes up and just chokes out all these things in your heart and in your life and in your spiritual growth. There are monsters at work. That's what Asaph is saying. But God is greater than the monster. God is greater than the dragon. God is greater than Leviathan. God crushes the colossal squid like it were a gnat because that's what it looks like to him. It's how big and powerful and strong our God is. You don't have to like that, but I like that. Look at verse number... Verse number 15, but thou didst cleave to the fountain and the flood. Thou driedest up mighty, mighty, mighty rivers. Look at verse number uh, 16. The day is thine and the night is thine also. Thou hast prepared the light and the sun. Thou hast set all borders on the earth. This is a, this is a beautiful picture about seasons. The day, the sun, the rain, the snow, the summer, the spring. All these seasons, guess who set them? Guess who monitors them? Guess who holds them? Guess who sets boundaries and keeps those boundaries correct? God does. 
God orders these boundaries. That's what he's saying. Hey, Pastor, how, do, how, does this, how does this work? And God orders the boundaries of good and evil in our lives. And God orders the boundaries of success and prosperity and benefit and growth. And God orders the boundaries of trouble and trial. Listen, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You get to Ecclesiastes. Solomon says the same thing. Our God is the God in the fall. He's the God in the winter. He's the God in the cold. He's the God in the snow. He's the God in the ice. But he's also the God in the spring and the God in the flowers and the God in the summer and the God in the rain shine and the God, the God on, the, on the long walks on the late night at the beach. God is the God of both and he sets boundaries into our lives. This is just a beautiful, it's a very helpful image when we understand that what we are going through is not what we will always go through through. Why? Because God sets boundaries. God gives seasons. God has order and time. And God monitors those boundaries in our lives. The trouble that you are experiencing is the trouble that you are only experiencing for a season. It's not the way it's always been. And it's not the way it'll always be. The trouble you're experiencing is the trouble that you're experiencing for a season. And this season is bound by God who sets boundaries. Notice this, they, they, they call to, so I said it's, their belief is rooted in two things. It's rooted in that first, God is the rescuer, but it's also rooted in second, that they have a relationship with God. It, it's their relationship with God that defines who they are. You see this in two ways. In, in, in verse 2, rather. Remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old. Listen to the two words. The rod of thy inheritance. So he's talking about the congregation he's purchased. The people that belong to God, who are they? They are the rod of his inheritance. So they are his inheritance. The image there of the rod is the image of, you know, God flexing his muscles when he delivered his people out of Egypt. The, this rod he shows this to you again in the phrase, which thou hast redeemed, you've bought, you've brought out. So the two images that remind Asaph of Asaph's relationship with God is inheritance and redeemed. Inheritance and redeemed. Their relationship with God defines who they are. Their trouble does not define who they are. Your trouble, your problems, your trials, your circumstances, these are not the things that define you. What defines you? What gives you identity? What gives you purpose? What gives you meaning? What gives you values? Not the trouble you go through. Not the trouble you avoid. Not the trouble that you experience. The things that define you. What your relationship, what your identity is, is predicated on your relationship with God. I'm crucified with Christ, Paul says. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So there is no condition of man. There's no circumstance that you will find yourself in that is more precious than being chosen as an inheritance and being redeemed by the Son of God. It simply means that God has set his favor on us fully and 
freely. And he's done that with all of his might. What was all of his might? His might was the Lord Jesus Christ. We're studying this in Romans on Sunday morning. What is the power of God unto salvation? The power of God unto salvation was the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their grief, their belief, last one, their relief. We'll make quick work of it. We'll be done. So remember this, verse 18. That the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people hath blasphemed thy name. So here, here's the request. Here's the relief. O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Look down to verse number 22. Arise, O God, and plead thine own cause. Look at verse 23. Forget not the voice of thine enemies, the tumult of them that rise up against thee, because they increase continually. James capitalizes on this same idea. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You see the prayer, you see the prayer in three ways. The prayer is, arise, O God. So it literally means, get up. Just say, he's saying to God, God, please get up on my behalf. Stand up and fight for me. That's what he's saying. You see it in, that's verse 22. You see it in verse 11. Look at verse number 11. Thou withdrawest thine hand, even thy right hand. Look at, look at how he finishes the verse. But pluck it out of thy bosom. So, so look at the image. The image is God's hands were like this. God, take your right hand and remove it from your, bo your bosom. Don't, don't sit there with your arms folded as we go through this problem, but instead, pluck your right hand from your bosom, and the image is, put it to work, reach it out, G grab us, hold us up, strengthen us, we, we need you to reach out and hold us up, and then you'll see verse number three, lift up thy feet unto perpetual desolations, literally the image is, God, pick up your feet, run speedily in my direction, so you hear the prayer, don't fold your arms and just watch. Run and get here quickly. Stand up and fight for us. All, all the images of the prayer, God, we need you to show up and we need you to show up right now. Can anybody relate? You might say, Pastor, I feel like that's too forward. I don't feel like you should say things like that to God. Well, God didn't correct Asaph for it. He recorded it in his word, then eternally preserved it forever. The problem is not that Asaph's prayer is too forward. The problem is that we are too backward. We think too little of our God. And we think way too much of the sea and the monsters. You remember Jesus in the New Testament when he tells about the widow who comes to the unjust judge and pleads for help? How many remember that parable? She knocks on the door, and the judge says, go away. And she knocks on the door, and the judge says, go away. And she knocks on the door, and the judge says, go away. And she knocks on the door, and the judge says, go away. And she knocks on the door, and she says, I'm not, I'm not going away until you hear my case. You help me out. That's the image that God gives, that Jesus uses, when he helps us understand what our prayer life is supposed to be like. We are the widow, weak, poor, no husband to speak up for us, no source of help. And here's this judge who he calls the wicked judge, 
who won't hear her. He doesn't care about her injustice. God is not a wicked judge, he goes on to say. God is a just judge. If a wicked judge will listen to a woman because she refuses to let it go, then how much more does a righteous judge listen to the prayers of his people? That's, that's the contrast. We are the poor widow woman. God is not the wicked judge. God's a just judge who loves to give good things to them that ask. So God actually in that parable stands in contrast to the judge. It's an easy way to say God is not pestered by your persistent prayer, but God invites you to persistently pray. This is what Asaph is doing. God, I need you to stand up and I need you to unfold your arms and I need you to run my direction and I need help. And I need you to help me because you are the only source of help that I have. Because the problems I'm facing in my life, it's greater than the sea. It's like dragons and leviathans. And I cannot overcome them on my own. I need a rescuer. And why and how long are never answered. David capitalized on the same idea. Why, why does, why does, why, you ever wondered, why does the psalm end like that? Well, why don't we have like a, you know, an addendum to the psalms? And by the way, God showed up and everything was great with Asaph from this point forward. He said this prayer, he clicked his heels, he went to church, he gave an offering, and ta-da! Everything was great in his life. You know why it doesn't read like that? Because that's not reality. No, no, no. Listen. At thy right hand, David says, are pleasures forevermore. You, you hear the images? God just hold my hand. God just be by my side. God just stand up and walk with me. And whatever I have to go through, for whatever reason I'm going through it, and however long it must be, it will be okay because thou art with me. You see the help? The help is not that the problem goes the way. The help is that there is a presence being offered by God Almighty himself. God, your rescuer, is with you.